I need a volunteer who's willing to listen to something for me and maybe talk into a microphone. Awesome. Okay. what I need you to do. I need you to explain to us what you're hearing. Okay. Am I listening and then I'm explaining or am I like? While you're listening, oh. I need you to explain to us what you're hearing, how it makes you feel, and what is happening. Okay. okay. It's music. Okay. peaceful anticipatory there's voices but they're not using words yeah so you all got that right I couldn't hear. <laughs> but but she described it for you so you you got what you, you felt you felt the same way that she did right when when uh, she said there's voices but there's no words it's calming but not sleepy it's anticipatory there's keyboards and maybe drums. Um, but you all get it, right? You feel the same way that she does. Uh, Luke, can you start at like 50 seconds or so? I mean, I would say modern chanting from what she described. A modern version of ancient monk chanting in a chapel. So it sounds like a modern... Repetitive, right, that was a word you used.
So that was exactly what you had in your mind, right, when she was describing... I mean, you can see where she would get to where she got, right? That was pretty repetitive. That was relaxing, but not like I'm going to fall asleep. And it felt like it was building to something that it never quite got to. Um, it does get there if you wait another couple of minutes. Uh, that's the band Sigaros, uh, an Icelandic post-rock band. The, the singer sings in fake words. So it's not even Icelandic. It's, it's words that are nonsense words. It's just a way of expressing his, his vocals. But you can't really describe a song that only you can hear to other people and have them experience it the same way you're experiencing it while you're listening to it, right? I would even venture to say if we all in this room listened to the same song together at the same time, we would hear it differently from each other. Like somebody who doesn't really understand how musicality might hear a bigger picture, but somebody who has spent their lives studying, let's say, drums, who's a huge drummer, they'd hear the drums in that song more than the keyboards. Did you notice the bass in that song? Because that's where my heart went to right away, the way the bass was changing the bass line as it went while the other music was playing the same things, but the bass was changing. Anybody else notice that? Charlie did. There you go. Oh, Deb did too. See, we can all have the same auditory experience together and yet interpret it differently, have it feel differently, let alone one person hearing it and trying to explain it to everyone else. Obviously, we can't do this. You simply cannot use words to explain a musical experience properly. You have to experience it for yourself. And then also understand that everyone's experience of it's going to be different from each other. Which reminds me, have you all noticed in the Bible, almost every single miraculous healing story is different? There is not one set way to cure somebody in the Bible of an illness. It's usually leprosy. They, they, they dealt with a lot, of, a lot of this. It's not just modern leprosy. Anytime there's a skin disorder, they called it leprosy. And that was considered like a you're out kind of disease because people don't want to catch that kind of stuff. It's usually pretty contagious if you've got uh, welts on you or whatnot. But they might even consider eczema to be uh, uh, leprosy. Or um, what is it? Uh, vitiligo? Is that the what Michael Jackson had, they would have considered that leprosy, psoriasis, all kinds of things they would consider leprosy, which would mean you're out. But if you look throughout the Bible, especially in the miracles of Jesus, man, everyone gets healed in a different way. Jesus spits on one guy's eyes, right? We don't do that in our churches. One time, Jesus heals a guy, a guy's servant, he doesn't even have to go there. He's just like remote healing from across a couple towns away. Um, there's a woman who steals healing from Jesus's cloak. There's a story of Elisha who lays on top of a boy and brings him back to life. Every single healing story is different in the Bible. And I would challenge you when you're reading and studying to pay attention to how a person gets healed and why it's so different. Because I think that, like music, all healing stories are unique because they all have one common core at the bottom. That in order to receive divine healing, 
You must first empty yourself to experience God's healing presence. That there is something blocking that healing uh, miracle in that. Now, I want to preface this. I'm not saying to any of you that if you've prayed for healing and it didn't happen, that there's a problem with you. You didn't pray right. You didn't, uh, you've got some hidden sin that's keeping you from seeing the miracle. Because this is obviously the problem of miracles is that if there was a way to make them work, nobody would ever die. <laughs> and uh, every faith healer would be thousands of years old at this point. Truth is, we don't understand why miracles happen. But in the scriptural story, they all happen for a reason. So I'm just talking about in the story of scripture, healings happen for a reason. So in our story today, we've got Naaman, who was a great general in, uh, in, in the, 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 the nation of Aram, which I'm sure all of you are very familiar with Aramean history, right? We don't have any ancient Semitic scholars here, I would imagine. This is one of Israel's neighbors and uh, one of their worst neighbors. Um, and in talking about this before, compared it to uh, like Russia and Ukraine and the long history of raiding parties, of taking, uh, you know, annexing Crimea and then coming over and taking this part and taking that part. There's been a back and forth between Israel and Aram for generations. These two are not friends. In fact, one of the characters we meet in the beginning is a slave girl that was stolen from Israel during one of those raiding parties from Aram. And so you've got this guy, Naaman. He's a general of the bad guys. And he finds himself with a skin disorder. And it is going to stop him from, getting, uh, from being a part of his people. He's not going to be able to lead his people. He's not going to be able to do his job. He's not going to be able to be out in society, in the marketplace. While he has this skin disorder, he needs to stay home in quarantine. It's miserable. And so this servant girl says to him, well, I wish that you could go to my people because my people have access to the one true God who can heal you. And so Naaman does whatever he can in all of his power to get what he needs so he gets a letter from the king, leveraging his political connections. He brings with him the modern equivalent of $3 million to go get treatment in this foreign place that are his enemies. So you can imagine one of uh, uh, Putin's generals finds out that there's a doctor in Kiev who can, who, who, who can cure this type of cancer that he has that nobody else can. And so this, gen this Russian general tries to go to Kiev with millions of dollars to get treatment from this guy. You can already feel this tension, right? And so he's trying to use his connections, his power, his money to get what he needs, which is healing. And instead, instead of walking in there and paying $3 million and giving his letter of recommendation and maybe showing a little bit of how shiny his sword is to scare Elisha. Elisha doesn't even go out to see him. He doesn't go out there, accept the payment, put hands on him and heal him. No, because that would be playing into what Naaman believes about himself. The walls he has put up around himself, his privilege, his power, all of that, that would be playing into what he has filled himself with. 
So instead, Elisha sends, you know, his intern to go out there to meet the guy out there and says, here, here's what you got to do. Go wash yourself in this muddy river down the street. I'm not even going to be there. But I want you to go wash yourself in this river down the street. And he's furious because, of course, he is. He's not the kind of guy that you tell that kind of message to. He's the kind of guy who says jump and everyone says how high because they're afraid of him because he's rich. He's powerful. He's well connected. He's filled himself with himself. But Elisha is telling him in this moment that if you want to be healed, if you want the power of the Spirit of God to do something in your life, I need you to empty some of that out of you. There's no room in you to be filled. So I want you to go to your enemy's dirty river, and it's not a clean river. And I need you to go wash yourself in your enemy's river and I'm not going to accept any money, and you'll be cleaned. And that's a hit. It's a hit to his personal pride, his professional pride, his national pride, right? He says, why can't I go to my great rivers in my hometown? Why do I have to go to this dirty backwater right here? He's got national pride that's being crushed as well. But in order to be healed, Naaman needs to give up the very things that make him who he is to empty himself of his privilege, his pride, his power, so that he can be filled with the Spirit. And Naaman, an enemy general, was not only healed that day of his skin disease, but he was forever changed by an encounter with the divine. And that, I think, is why most of you are here, I would imagine, unless you're here because your parents brought you. Because you are looking, searching for a true encounter with that which is both beyond everything but also within us. That, that presence of the divine that you can feel. The book of Ecclesiastes says that God has put eternity into the hearts of us but not the minds to understand it. That you have touched and tasted something and you want more. The, the author uh, Carl Rayner writes that in the days ahead... You will either be a mystic, which is one who has experienced God for real, or nothing at all. And I think that's true, and I think we're seeing that played out, that there's this accelerating discontent with religion and the order that it offers to us, the stability that it offers to us, and a growing hunger for something more, something personal, something that you can feel and experience, that experience of having the headphones on yourself and hearing the music yourself the freedom to interpret that yourself, to not have to listen to what somebody else says about the thing. We are craving something more connected, something more life-giving and mystical. We're awakening to the truth that God is available to all of us, not just those of us with degrees, <laughs> but to every single human being on this planet. God is available to us to touch and feel and know personally. And I think that we're all yearning for a taste of that, but just like Naaman, in order to get there, we need to empty ourselves. Learning to experience God is, is actually a process of unlearning. 
of unknowing, of unmaking, unbecoming. It's not about filling ourselves with new knowledge or filling our lives with good works, with good teachings, good actions, good morals, but rather about emptying ourselves of what we think we need to make us who we are. I'm reminded of this quote from the Tao Te Ching, and that's the next slide up there. Ancient wisdom text, which says, 30 spokes are joined together in a wheel, but it is the center hole that allows the wheel to function. We mold clay into a pot, but it is the emptiness inside that makes the vessel useful. We fashion wood for a house, but it is the emptiness inside that makes it livable. We work with the substantial, but the emptiness is what we use. We work with the substantial, but the emptiness is what we use. <clears throat> Can we just take a second with that? Because I honestly, I wish I could tell you the work of unknowing, of emptying, and all of that was a passive process was an easy process, was just like a matter of here, we're going to close our eyes and say this prayer, and you will be unmade and filled with the Spirit. But that's just not how it works. We have to work with the substantial in order to find the emptiness that we can use. This process is going to require deep, intentional self-discovery, perhaps even therapy, uh, in order to... Uh, unravel the mess, this mess of self-protective layers that you've covered your true self with. So I think we all have done that, haven't we? That in order to survive our past trauma, we have put up walls, we have, we have created uh, facades within us in order to protect us from the world. But this process is going to require us to be honest and open about that, to dig deep into our motivations, to learn what it is that we have to let go of. It's only possible to empty yourself when you know what it is that you're emptying yourself of. <laughs> and this process can be hard, it can be frightening, it can be lonely, but it doesn't have to be lonely. Because you, friends, have a community of faith that is doing this with you. This is a community of faith built on the principles that we are gathered we are, we are united by our common love and not our common beliefs. So when those beliefs change, when you dig deep within yourself and you don't like what you find, we're still with you. And we will always be with you. We'll be with you as you work through your past traumas and then as you experience the utter transformation that comes from being filled with the Spirit of God. So friends, my prayer for you today is that you may have the wisdom to know yourself, the strength to let yourself go, and the joy that comes from an indescribable connection to the divine itself.